This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So good afternoon. Good afternoon. My name is Rod Elfernis, and I'm Dean of Engineering uh, here at UCSB. I'd like to welcome you and thank you for coming to this Herb Cromer Symposium. We're looking forward to a day of reminiscing and celebrating the extraordinary career of Herb Cromer. Herb has had an incredible impact on this campus, as he has on the industry and in the field, and we really appreciate your coming, joining us in this day, sharing your experiences and your thoughts about your work uh, with Herb, and um, and celebrating, again, what has been just an incredible career with impact in so many, many different areas. As you can see from the agenda, um, this is a packed agenda, so I'm going to set the, set the role model here and take just a few minutes, um, and it will be important and at the same time very challenging to stay on schedule. Um, but we encourage you to do that, R- remind you that there will be a half an hour break, um, the uh, pressures of time permitting, half an hour break, and also a reception, so there will be an additional time to, to uh, ask questions and, and, and speak with Herb. We really try to keep on schedule as much as possible. I do want to take this opportunity, Herb, to thank you personally. Um, you have been, uh, for me, um, an advisor and a mentor and guide as I've taken on this new role in the university, and I thank you very, very much for that. Um, I also want to um, thank Larry Cauldron, who has chaired the organizing committee that uh, arranged this event, and also... Um, Rita and Libby, who have been responsible for much of the organization. A very, very special thank you, as you'll notice on the charts, um, the sponsorship and support of Teledyne Corporation and Corning is uh, very, very greatly appreciated. So now before I introduce the chancellor, I'd just like to take this opportunity to say, again, thank you for coming. Enjoy the day. We're really looking for a forward to a wonderful, wonderful day. And at this point, uh, it's my pleasure to invite uh, for some welcoming statements our Chancellor Henry Yang. Thank you, Rod. <clears throat> I, I had a very well-structured, prepared speech I can read. So I thought that for Herbert, I just uh, reminisce what I, our relationship for the last 20 years. Uh, I have been here only 19 years, but I remember 20 years ago when I decided to come to UCSB. Uh, I was at uh, Purdue at the time. We had a young assistant professor. I don't believe he was tenured at that time. His name, some of you might know him by name, Superior Data from Illinois. So he told me, he said, you go to UCSB. He mentioned the two names. One is Herb, another is Vanke. Um, he said, he first talked about Venky. He said, I have a dean that uh, usually uh, at about 10 o'clock you would hear, you, you, his voice usually arrive in your room before he, uh, his personal presence. You, you hear that he's coming to have coffee with you. So if you have issues, you get ready, and that's your chance. I don't know, Venky, I cannot see you. It's so light. Yeah, right there. Venky, I, I, hope, I hope it's okay with you. That, that's, that's the general impression they got. So, so I, I came here. I, I, um, I, I talked to Venky, and whenever I mentioned about Herb, Venky's decibel just increases. That shows your respect to a person. 
so um, um, that, that was my first uh, experience. So later on, of course, we had many interactions in 1998. I remember in 1998, on July, one morning, just uh, very early morning, uh, Walter got his call from the Stockholm for the Nobel Prize. I think Walter is here as well, Walter. Uh, yeah, right here, Walter. So uh, we, uh, we had a 70th birthday symposium uh, during that winter, right after the, that phone call. So Yusen, uh, Herb was there. And uh, many of Herb's former students and colleagues came. So we had a real good time. And at that time, of course, uh, everybody was talking about that famous paper in 1957, got rejected by the uh, physics letter. Uh, then they also were talking about that is the paper that is going to, uh, uh, is going to be the one that would uh, uh, win the Nobel Prize for, 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 for Herb. Uh, but at the time, I remember I asked Herb, I said, about the Nobel Prize. Herb made a, a very interesting rule about how to get a Nobel Prize. There are only two kinds of people they would get a Nobel Prize. One kind is that you are not expecting it. Another kind is you no longer expecting it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so in, in, 2000, in the year 2000, uh, of course, Herb... Herb uh, receive his Nobel Prize, and uh, I, if you look at the web, they have two versions about the citations of his uh, um, his winning the reason of his uh, the basis of his uh, Nobel Prize. Uh, one is saying that for developing semiconductor heterostructures used in high speed and optoelectronics. Uh, another version is more popular, more general, says for basic work in information and the communication technology. It's just that simple. The more you do, the less words you use. Um, so after the Nobel Prize, uh, of course, Herb uh, was kind of overwhelmed by the new friends you have. Uh, so one day I remember Herb was, was telling me, he said, he said Henry, you are, I have two kinds of friends. Uh, one is before uh, year 2000, and that is after year 2000, December, uh, October. So all of us here are the ones before that Nobel Prize. <laughs> so we feel very much at home. So I thought, why should I give you an official presentation? I might just chat about, the, about, about Herb and our, our, we are all in the family here. Uh, so when I, uh, of course, you can just imagine with such a, uh, a, a high-powered uh, intelligence source, I want to take best advantage out of it. So whenever I have a chance to just drop in, knock on the door, drop in Herb's office and chat with him. And uh, Herb told me a lot of things. In 1976, he came from uh, Boulder, Colorado. That was 70, uh, 37 years ago. Uh, at that time, his philosophy was simple. UC Santa Barbara does not have the resources. We could not go to, uh, to uh, follow the mainstream in Silicon Valley for uh, silicon semiconductors. We should, we should be careful. We should have concentrated on you know, heterostructures, nitride. And so Herb gave that. So that set the tone for the direction of this campus. Uh, not only that, also that uh, also set the tone for us to attract the people working in this field to come to UC Santa Barbara. Uh, one of the examples, of course, is that uh, we were able to be very lucky to attract uh, uh, Shuji Nakamura. I think Shuji must be here. I cannot quite see you here. Yeah, Shuji right there, and Steve Danbar, you're there, and all our LED groups are there. 
And uh, so uh, we, uh, I remember uh, we had a symposium for uh, Shuji when he received the Millennium Technology Prize, and Herb, Herb made this statement. I'll just read. Suddenly, the world had changed. Uh, he's referring to 1994 when Shuji presented his uh, very strong blue laser. So he's, uh, Herb said, suddenly the world had changed. What we are seeing here is the beginning of the end of the light bulb. We are not talking about doing things better, but about doing things we never could before. So that was Herb's vision. Um, as you can imagine, I just uh, uh, endlessly try to seek advice from Herb. And I found if you want to invite Herb to, to come to your party or to come to visit you or to somewhere, uh, actually, Herb has some weak spots. If you find it, you can get it. If you don't, he'll say no. Um, first, is, I said, could you go to Sacramento to talk to the legislature, give us more funding? He said, I'll do that. So he did that. And I said, if we say, Are you going to, would you like to go to grade school to talk to the kids? He doesn't say no. If we say go to high school, we're pushing a little bit more. He said, yeah, I could do that. And um, uh, another way is just you say, if you want to box his calendar, you just say, we're going to have a symposium. Then Herb always Herb likes to attend the symposiums. But unfortunately, unfortunately, this one is for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, uh, and when Herb received his Nobel Prize, of course, I always very careful want to see, Herb, what you want? Do you want anything? Uh, do you have a wish? Herb says, I only want one thing. That is, I want a parking sticker at the West Campus. Uh, so that I can, uh, Mary Lou and my son my, uh, and, and Ryan can, and I can stroll around the beach. So her, you, you, you will have a permanent parking sticker there, for sure. And um, uh, Herb went to a women's basketball game because Ryan wanted, likes women's basketball game. We went to just about every game. So when I go there, every time when we finished, Herb took notes. I always, I always had to you know, say something to the coach to encourage her. She always asked me, how is our Nobel laureate to say about me today? I said, he has a little book. So you still have that little uh, scorebook. And someday she might pay a big price to buy that. I don't know if it's for sale. <laughs> And uh, I, I remember another genius thing Herb did was that I, I think all of you have children, grandchildren. You probably go to high school. You have this contest about drop an egg. You, know, you have that drop egg test from third floor. You, know, you put a lot of mash, marshmallows and wrap around it so you drop the egg is still intact. Then you win the prize. Herb thought that that was, too, uh, was not smart enough. So Herb designed, helped Ryan design a box put water in it, put eggs in it. You keep punting salt until the gravity becomes a specific weight, become, become the same. So the eggs start to be in a, in a weightless situation. You drop it and it won't break. So I tell the big secret. I give the big secret away. <laughs> so I... And when, 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 uh, another thing I'm forever grateful to Herb is that Herb... Uh, uh, Herb was very generous. When he got his Nobel Prize, he said, uh, he said, Henry, I would like you to come to Stockholm to attend my, uh, my ceremony. Of course, Dylan and I just jumped at the chance. So we bought a cheap coach class ticket. Uh, 
we went to this Scandinavian uh, air, air, airline. So when they always say, we are the guest of a Nobel laureate, so the person just come, we, you upgrade to first class. So we did. <laughs> then, then when we came back, we realized because that was on, on an available basis, and they, they, they sold out for their first class. So Herb flew back on the coach class. <laughs> I think you still remember that. And, uh, and, uh, um, and we, uh, when we attend Herb's uh, ceremony, uh, they, they're supposed to deliver the, the tickets to your, deliver the tickets to your, uh, to, to, to your room. So we waited, the ticket never came. About an hour before, we still did not have the ticket. We could not go. So I went to the counter. They said, we already delivered it. It turned out to be they delivered it to a wrong Yang, who was a tourist from China. <laughs> Apparently, the person saw that, took it, and checked out right away. So we did not, uh, we, we did not, we did not have... Uh, so I have many, many uh, stories with, uh, with, with Herb. But also, uh, I, I asked Herb, I said, well, can you give us some advice? What are the most important priorities in, at this university or in engineering? I think, uh, Rod, you would agree with it. He said, only three priorities. It's space, space, and space. Uh, uh, another advice he gave me is that uh, you said, don't try to be an expert in an area you are not in. So I have remembered that as well. And uh, I also remember another story I can share with you is when Herb uh, became a citizen, a U.S. citizen. And, you know, when you become U.S. citizen in Southern California, you have to go there in the summer. You have this swearing-in ceremony. Uh, they put uh, about a 2,000 of you on that huge concrete block. You waited there for hours uh, to, to swear you in. So it, that, that doesn't seem to be a good way. So I called a congresswoman, and she said, let's see what we can do. So they arranged the superior court judge to come to Santa Barbara to have a special ceremony for just for Herb. Uh, for her uh, U.S. citizenship. You can just see how much this country is honored to have you as a citizen. But they cannot do just alone, so they did it for about 20 people. So there are, uh, there are some, a dozen other people all get in and enjoy in the air conditioning room and sit there, and, and we had a good time. So uh, I just want to say two more things. One is about... Uh, uh, about you know these are all friends among ourselves. Uh, you know at the university, if we want to attract good student faculty, sometimes that superficial thing called a ranking matters. So uh, two weeks ago, there was a ranking called a Leiden University ranking. They use four years of record of faculty publications in the area of science and social sciences. And, uh, and the science meaning including applied science, of course. And they use faculty, up, uh, the citation of faculty publications in selected uh, major journals. Then they divide it by the uh, number of faculty on a normalized per capita basis for four years. Then they rank them. And uh, as I can see, you know, uh, Herb and Walter and Many, many, all of our faculty here uh, publish so extensively, get cited. So that brings the norm up 
significantly. As a result of this year, uh, number one is MIT, number two is Santa Barbara, number three, Stanford, number four, Princeton, number five, Harvard, and all in that sequence. And so we are very, very uh, proud and very appreciative of faculty uh, writing those papers being highly cited. Uh, but in that, they did not include those papers being rejected. <laughs> I, uh, uh, the last thing I want to say is I'm very, very pleased and uh, proud to announce that now we have raised enough money to have a Herbert Cromer uh, endowed a chair on material science. And congratulations. Actually, I'd like to take this opportunity to uh, thank Herb on behalf, first of all of us, because we get to enjoy the uh, different technology items that have emerged from Herb's research. So if, if you use a cell phone, or if you have perhaps a laser pointer in your hand, uh, you're using something that uh, stemmed from Herb's research. I'd also like to uh, thank him on behalf of semiconductor device researchers for opening up so many pathways for future research. And also personally, because I am one of the people that have been able to uh, benefit from his guidance. So I think uh, during this symposium, we'll hear about many aspects of what Herb has done, including gun effect and 6.1 angstrom heterojunction lineup theory and so forth. But I would like to focus on just one aspect of that, having to do with the bipolar transistors. So in this presentation, really I'd like to uh, briefly tell you about the saga of HBTs, which properly should be known as Herb's bipolar transistors. So actually, the story begins long ago, before the advent of the HBT itself. Uh, every bipolar transistor of any sort that has any FT whatsoever owes its performance in some sense to Herb because he developed the drift principle for bipolar transistors. Th this is uh, very important. The, as uh, Jim Early expressed it, this was conceived before its time by a young German theorist at Darmstadt. This issue of um, doing things well before their time uh, has characterized a lot of what Herb has done. So building in uh, drifts from doping is something that was on Herb's mind, and it sort of emphasizes the fact that band diagrams and their understanding can be important, and this is something that Herb has emphasized to us over and over. Now, the wideband gap emitter for bipolar transistors is a really brilliant idea. Uh, Herb discovered, however, that Shockley had come up with this, had written about it in the early days, and uh, Herb uh, very properly uh, never uh, <clears throat> let us forget that. But it, Herb uh, took things quite a bit further. And in fact, he acted on the implementation of this type of thing. Herb, uh, in fact, investigated the silicon germanium uh, diagram, the alloy system, uh, a long time ago. And uh, actually, the, um, <clears throat> at the time, it was not possible to make a sufficiently large band gap difference between an emitter to base because pseudomorphic growth was only 30 years in the future. And it was the issue of the, the uh, strain that's associated with the... Um, 
the, the <clears throat> pseudomorphic growth that leads to the band gap difference that's sufficient uh, for getting good uh, in emitter injection efficiency. Another important um, success was the graded composition in the base, and this makes uh, a far better bipolar transistor. This is uh, something that has formed the basis of IBM's development of SIGI HBTs, and to their credit, they, they do ascribe to Herb the invention of this device. A lot more has gone on in the development of the bipolar transistor, and, and a good deal of it actually took place here at Santa Barbara. Um, Herb essentially invented gallium indium phosphide in order to overcome some of the problems having to do with uh, the gallium arsenide HBTs. Another issue had to do with alloy-based contacts. This is something that Jerry Woodall had a hand in early on, but Herb pointed out that you could make alloyed contacts both for the p-type base as well as the n-type emitter. He also came up with the notion of having a, a collector on the top of the bipolar transistor, which has stimulated a lot of research. Now, things have evolved since then, and there are many modern embodiments. For example, the uh, one and a quarter billion cell phones that are made today have, for the most part, HBTs based on gallium arsenide. SIGI HBTs uh, also are very prevalent. They're in many of the very high-speed applications. And beyond that, for uh, terahertz applications, the indium phosphide HBTs have really exquisite high-frequency response. And I think Mark Rodwell will be telling us more about that later on. But I'd like to shift gears a little bit and talk about well, how ideas like this get transferred to the, to the rest of the world from uh, people like Herb. And the, the traditional view is that this takes place in um, conference proceedings and, and, and lectures. But I think, in reality, personal contacts are much more important. And Herb has... Uh, sort of engaged in this quite a bit. In fact, I personally had the opportunity to, uh, to learn from Herb in kind of a direct way. In a sense, I followed just uh, a little bit in Herb's uh, footsteps because I was an intern at uh, RCA Labs and his, after Herb had left and his legend lived on uh, at that venue and they told me about his work. Then later on at Rockwell... I enjoyed uh, frequent conversations with Herb, who was a consultant there. And um, these conversations were uh, actually very special, and uh, it became clear that Herb was quite extraordinary. So I took good notes, but then after a while, I thought, well, I should do more than that. So I uh, sort of was careful to uh, preserve the notes that Herb had used in all of these discussions. And, and you can see here things about gun effect and even some uh, novel 3.5 heterostructure devices. But then these conversations went on also during lunchtime, and um, Herb uh, continued the, the uh, instruction and grabbed whatever paper was nearby so here are a bunch of napkins on which uh, Herb had uh, 
made sketches of different ideas and different uh, avenues for future research. Yes, these uh, pieces of paper um, did not just serve to uh, to uh, <laughs> transfer science, but uh, there were other functions as well. Now, there is a, a question, why would someone save napkins for actually many decades? And it's because, um, for me, uh, Herb was very special. These were um, unusual opportunities. And uh, Herb has always been a, a mentor and a great hero. In fact, uh, I think for many of us, Herb is a singular hero. And for those of us in academia, he's a hero also to our students. And I know that he's a hero to the students of my students who are teaching in various places. So we kind of have a view of Herb as the uh, superhero of the semiconductor area. So Herb, I'd like to say once again, thanks from all of us. Uh, so I'm supposed to uh, tell you uh, about the time I, I first met Herb and what the circumstances were. Uh, so I have to go back in time. Uh, I was uh, working on solar cells in a, uh, one of those big East Coast companies, and I had come into it from an optoelectronics background. And uh, so uh, I was studying. I was trying to learn. I, uh, for, uh, Professor Kuiser's paper, I, I, I became very well-versed in that and so on. And then one day it uh, dawned on me uh, that just as a double heterostructure is great for lasers and LEDs, that it is, for the same reason, good for solar cells. And I was uh, very, very much stunned by this. Uh, the, it was a fantastic thing in my mind. And, I, and, and, and so I went back and how did Cromer know? Okay, and it was, it was kind of amazing. So he grew in my imagination. I had never met her, and, but he grew in my imagination, and he got to be bigger and bigger in my imagination. But I was just uh, an industrial scientist and uh, minding my own business. And then one day, I got a call from Pierre Petrov. And uh, Pierre invited me to give two honorary lectures at UC Santa Barbara. So I said, wow, OK. Uh, but uh, Pierre was, he was very solicitous. And like, I was doing him a great favor. And um, I didn't quite realize it at the time, but I would end up doing the teaching, and Pierre would end up getting the credit, the teaching <laughs> credit. <laughs> so so it, it dawned on me. It dawned on me that I had a little bit of leverage. And so I said, Pierre, I will do it under one condition only, and that you have to get me an appointment with Herb Cromer. And uh, so he said, OK, I'll, I'll do it. And uh, you'll, you, you'll come here, you'll, you'll, you'll teach, and then you'll, you'll get an appointment with uh, Herb Cromer. So I arrived at uh, UC Santa Barbara, and I uh, taught my classes, and I got my appointment with Herb. Now, so I have to tell you how the appointment went. Now, maybe Herb doesn't remember this. <laughs> okay. So uh, basically, uh, I... You know, I was a kind of a young guy, but already I've never met him, but he was already a hero in my eyes. And so I went into his office, and I, I, I said, oh, you're, you're a god, you're, you're this, you're that. You're... <laughs> and and uh, it was, 
it was very clear I was making him uncomfortable. <laughs> and and uh, so he said, well, I'm just doing this as a favor for Pierre. I'm, I'm, I'm having an appointment with you. You're, you're embarrassing me. Well, he didn't say that. He was very, he's very nice, but I could sort of tell I was maybe uh, a little bit uh, over the top. And uh, nonetheless, it was a great experience for me. And uh, that is how I first met Herb, which was a great event. Okay. And uh, so I think that's, that's the amount of uh, my story. The rest is history, as, as they say. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bobby. Well, this is a, a, an honor to participate, but really from the depth of my heart, it's really a thank you to Herb for many, many years uh, of mentorship and... Uh, collegial relations that uh, we've had uh, at, at both when I was a graduate student. I first had the good fortune to meet Herb through my thesis advisor, Gerald Pearson, in the fall of 1964. And the gun effect was a new kind of thing, and there was some fair controversy about that. And uh, so Gerald said, you know, I have just the guy for you to meet because he's quite opinionated about the gun effect. So I said, all right. So I rode my bike over to Varian, where Herb was. And, and the thing that, there were a couple of things that really struck me. One was just, I was not all that well-schooled in, in uh, energy bands and things, uh, which was typical of electrical engineers. You just drew kind of a PN junction, and that was about it. Uh, let's see if... PCs always hate me, so. Okay. So, um, that uh, I uh, was one, just the, you know, just depth of physics and things that really struck me. And secondly, the thing that kind of caught me was that it was observed in some materials and not others, and certainly not in any group four compounds. So I was kind of searching and looking what to do, uh, but what really kind of fueled my excitement was, was just Herb's um, enthusiasm and, and conviction, uh, and ultimately, over many years uh, that I've experienced, his, his real love of science and investigation. And Maybe, maybe some of you know uh, my advisors, Gerald Pearson and John Mall, who gave me great uh, technical guidance, but I can tell you that none of, they didn't compare uh, to Herb in uh, fire and enthusiasm. And so, um, as you'll see from, I originally had uh, this slide as, as the last one. Um, let's see, which is the button here that, uh, all right. That turned it off. <laughs> Never turn a, a Macintosh guy loose with a PC. Press it harder. All right. So uh, I was afraid Peter was going to reveal this. And you'll see as I go through my talk uh, the impact that this has, has had. I have used this. Um, so if in discussing a semiconductor you don't draw an energy band diagram, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, and if you uh, can but you don't, your audience won't know what you're talking about. So um, 
I've used this uh, ever since I went back to Stanford and started teaching, so this has been uh, the subject of, you could say, either enlightenment or torture, depending on your view from the student. Um, And fortunately, in 2000, I got to upgrade my slide. Um, But the thing that is interesting about this is this was not so widely used other than those mainly in the, in the compound semiconductor world. Uh, but the last decade, uh, understanding energy bands has become far, far more relevant and important as silicon has gotten pressed to the limits and trying to keep up with Moore's Law, that uh, people are using strained silicon, silicon germanium, germanium, uh, graphene, multi-wall or single-wall carbon nanotubes and topological insulators, and all of those, you really need a much deeper understanding. So the only difference was Herb was 40 years before his time. Uh, But I had the good fortune to get exposed to this almost 50 years ago, and it has been an immense impact on my career. So uh, this was uh, when I, after I finished at... uh, Uh, Stanford, I went to Rockwell International to the Science Center, and um, I set up a liquid phase epitaxy system and started growing heterojunctions, and it wasn't too long before I ended up having some things that I couldn't explain very well, and so my boss, Al Joseph, said, well, is there somebody that you know that could uh, do some consulting? I said, absolutely. So I personally remember going, Herb may not remember this, it's kind of amazing putting this talk together, some of the things that I dug up from uh, archives and things, and things that I just remember just almost like they happened yesterday, when sometimes I have trouble remembering what happened just yesterday. Um, But uh, so um, I went to to Boulder and uh, talked with Herb, and he was still doing some things on gun effect, but I said, you know, Heterojunctions are just really starting to explode, and, and I think you could really help us. So he said, all right. So Al Joseph worked out a deal, and, and uh, so I think that's maybe one thing I can say that I actually did for Herb was that that consulting agreement has lasted for more than 40 years. Um, and um, so uh, this is a paper that I dug out, and, and I don't know from what Peter showed. I'll show you this in a moment, but... This was uh, a paper by uh, Al Thiroff, who uh, Herb shared the Nobel Prize with. And one of the things that uh, Herb uh, was uh, not a distinct lover of was this ideal heterojunction model by Anderson. Uh, But the thing that was of most concern to me was that they claimed that this discontinuity here, which is very important in the design of heterojunction devices, was entirely in the conduction band and, and nothing in the valence band. And so uh, looking at this paper that I dug out from, from uh, 40 years ago, uh, I found on the back side of it a diagram. I think this handwriting is mine, but it, it could have been. Anyway, there was this band diagram there uh, that Herb and I uh, talked about, and it was clear to me uh, that one explanation, and Herb, Herb and I had quite a long discussion, is that this was an, an LPE junction, aluminum gallium arsenide grown on a heavily zinc-doped gallium arsenide substrate, and that if you had zinc diffusion into the al gas, you ended up with a wide band gap uh, PN junction, and this gave you an exact uh, 
similarity in terms of the IV characteristics and things to uh, a complete discontinuity in the conduction band. Uh, so uh, I did quite a number of things on heterojunctions, and actually this morning I looked this paper up, uh, and it turns out this is Herb's most, uh, second most cited paper, um, and uh, one that I'm certainly proud of, that uh, the only thing, as I would say, you know, in numerous rump sessions at DRCs and, and uh, seminars at Stanford and different places, I have to say, Herb was never shy. And uh, this is one time I think Herb was just not as bold. We could have been a lot bolder. Uh, uh, and it's kind of interesting with uh, Venki Narayanamurthy here because uh, his group at uh, Bell Labs were the, uh, Dingle and, and Al Cho and all of the ping people who uh, had firmly convinced the world that the band offsets were 85% in the conduction band, and there was this 85-15 rule for a couple of years, and eventually it became known as Dingle's rule. And so uh, we kind of waved our hands and said, you know, how do we uh, get around this? And so we said, well, maybe it's because it was compositional grading in the LPE growth. So that was the end of story for a while. We were kind of outside the, quote, in community. We were the rebels out there. We didn't know what we were doing anyway. Uh, so the Bell Labs people uh, dominated. But eventually, uh, the mystery was solved. And that was five years later, Herb uh, determined the band offsets using exactly the same kind of junctions, but that the band offsets were grading independent. It was kind of interesting. So when I looked up the, the when you have the right answer, it only got cited about 20% as, as many times as the previous one where we had the first uh, idea. But... These were some things over the years, this was all while I was at Rockwell, that really uh, shaped, you know, thinking about things that were, were challenging and uh, not to uh, back off from uh, what you believed in. Um, so, the, um, after, uh, in 1982, um, I had interviewed for a couple of positions at uh, universities, and uh, just at the very end of that kind of period, uh, Jim Gibbons invited me to come to Stanford to interview, and I was at the DRC conference in uh, Fort Collins that year. I think it was the first year it was held in Fort Collins rather than in, in uh, Boulder uh, when it was on the three-year rotation. So Herb was there, and he came up and says, so when are you going to Stanford? I said, yeah, how did, how did you know this? He says, well, you know, I talked with Jim Gibbons, and I said, well, you know, it's nothing's really certain. I mean, I kind of, he said they would, could give me a, an acting position, uh, but it still had to go through the board of trustees and things for a, a tenured position. So Herb says, so what are you waiting for? I said, well, you know, I mean, this is kind of an uncertain thing. He said, did Jim Gibbons call you and tell you you could have this position? I said, yeah. He said, go. <laughs> so um, I, uh, 
it was, it was, it really was a tipping point in my life. That 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 certainty, I I said, all right, Herb was somebody I really greatly respected, and so uh, I determined almost immediately to go. And the good news was that I never really had any anxiety about it. I just plunged ahead, and and uh, things have been great ever since. One of the things I I want to fail to. Uh, a personal story go back to from our, when I first got Herb to come to uh, Rockwell was um, that, uh, and it may have cemented our relationship, that uh, I picked him up at uh, LAX and took him out to Thousand Oaks, and, and then he was there, I think, for two days, and so then I brought him back. And so on the way back, my wife and I were living in West L.A. at that time, and uh, so uh, we, we had dinner at our home. And uh, so I brought out a bottle of wine. And uh, so I, I could see Herb kind of looking at this. And in retrospect, I'm sure he was thinking, what, what do I say? How am I kind of can I politely say, well, this is really nice wine, Jim. Um, so uh, because it was a bottle of Zinfandel. And uh, in, in those days, white Zinfandel was sort of the in thing. And, and then it was from a vineyard he had never heard of, a Ridge Vineyard. But uh, I had had the good fortune that my wife worked for Charlie Rosen at SRI doing computer work, and he was one of the co-owners of Ridge Vineyards. And if you've ever heard Herb's expression sometimes, he was, he's not often speechless, but the only thing he tasted this, and he said, Wow! I still remember that, that uh, he was just blown away by that. So that may have uh, for, helped cement our uh, long-term relationship. Uh, this is the paper that was referred to and shows the first uh, application of, of heterojunctions uh, and, as they said, was uh, rejected and, and was eventually found. This is about you know, constitutes probably 25% of the paper, practically. Uh, it was little more than one column in the proceedings of the IEEE in the letters part. But the thing that kind of I bring this up now is what's highlighted here in yellow. It says, but lasing has not yet been in, uh, observed in indirect band gap materials such as germanium and silicon and gallium phosphide. And I think that's been something that those of us in the, in the laser world firmly believed was going to be true forever. But uh, the past uh, two years, uh, we've been working uh, on uh, making heterojunctions with uh, germanium using strain engineering and germanium tin and making a more complicated structure, and we've made these disk structures now. One thing's more challenging with, uh, compound, uh, with uh, group four semiconductors is you can't cleave them and make good mirrors. They don't cleave at all. So we have made this disk structure in a, a, a whispering gallery mode. And so this is a germanium tin heterojunction structure. And it's optically pumped because we are making ohmic contacts is a bit more problematical. And they want to absorb light in the, uh, in, in the infrared. So uh, anyway, I think making uh, a laser as you envisioned 50 years ago, may not be impossible, and I hope we're successful. But more than anything, I want to thank you for 50 years of, of incredible uh, 
mentorship and help, I'm sure that my career would never have been anything like it has been without your help. So thank you very much, and it's great to be here. In 1978, I was a very happy researcher at Bell Laboratories when I got a call from Herb Kroma uh, about an opening at UCSB. I thought I would look into it. When I got back to, um, to New Jersey, uh, my wife, Rosemary, said, tell me about this guy, Kroma. She was working on umlauts too, Herb. She said, is he a focus man whose life revolves around his... Uh, what do you call it, MBE? Or is he an unrelenting German with a passion for standards and quality? Or is he a visionary with broad knowledge who sees the big picture? I said, yes. All of the above. I want to work with them, and I hope they make me an offer. They did. And later that year, I ended up at UCSB. And let me tell you about the department I joined. ECE, Electrical Computer Engineering. The department was collegial, it was cordial, but it was a little bit sleepy. Uh, it was more famous for the signals and systems group, image processing, tomography, things like that. Frank Ordung and John Skalnick had come from um, Yale and had founded the department, but it was clear that it was now up to Herb and possibly to me to build a solid state group. And we had wonderful times in those days. We used to eat our brown bag lunch on a bench overlooking the Santa Barbara Channel, actually right in front of this building. And we would dream big dreams, and we would dream small dreams. Uh, we planned how to actively recruit graduate students, and we decided, and I, this was Herb's idea, that we should give them support for their first summer so that they could get into research labs before they got into the classroom. We schemed about future appointments in solid state, and we agreed that we should only hire people who were better than ourselves. Easily done for me, not so easily done for her. <laughs> we agreed we would build a group, a team, of interactive faculty who would work together, building on each other's skills. And finally, and most importantly, Herb insisted that our group should focus on compound semiconductors. We could be one of the best in the country, he thought, if we stuck to compound semiconductors. We did not realize it at the time, but those decisions were critical. We set out to build something that we thought was unique. Many people uh, credit Herb and me with the birth and early success of the Electronic Materials and Device Program at Santa Barbara. I give much of the credit to the administration. Aggressive entrepreneurial leaders were at the helm. Bob Huttenbach was a chancellor. Ray Sawyer was the executive vice chancellor. And Robert Morabian, whom we later hired, was the incredible dean of the College of Engineering. Morabian, one of the first things he did was to form a materials department that is now uh, listed as the best in the country. Our first hire was Steve Long, who is somewhere in the audience, and I'm also blinded like the <laughs> chancellor was, uh, from Rockwell, expert on gallium arsenide digital integrated circuits. That led to a unique opportunity. 
We formed a coalition with Jim Harris, my good friend, who used up all my extra time, <laughs> as he has done all my life since I've known him, and Bob Dutton at Stanford, and we proposed to the Semiconductor Research Corporation that we be the, the window on gallium arsenide. Uh, they had, up to that time, done nothing but silicon. I believe we were one of the earliest inter-university multi-investigator programs. No matter that the window on gallium arsenide came crashing down on our fingertips a few years later, that uh, program gave uh, uh, UCSB a good deal of visibility and put us on the map. So then we started hiring uh, um, appointments. Now, I hope I do better than I did with my timer. So let's see. Is this? How do I advance this thing? Oh, I have it upside down, everybody. Thank you. So we agreed to raid Bell Labs. And in 1984, uh, I remember um, swimming in Larry Cauldron's wonderful uh, swimming pool at his home, I think, in Summit, New Jersey, uh, wondering how I'd ever get him to leave the Bell Labs environment. But we succeeded. Thank God we succeeded, because Larry was the first to come. Same year, Evelyn Hu came with Susan Hackwood and Gerardo Benny, all from Bell Labs. I had been pursuing Evelyn Hu like the hound of heaven, and I thought, <laughs> I thought Santa Barbara was heaven. And she said no to me each time. But then she teamed up with her good friends Susan and Gerardo, and they came to uh, Santa Barbara to form a new program in robotics. Sometime between 1984 and 1986, I ran into Pierre Petrov at a conference, and his wife cornered me, and she said, when is it Pierre's turn? <laughs> Pierre, I won't say that's the only reason you got the offer. <laughs> she was very compelling. But uh, in 1986, Pierre's turn came up, and again, thank God, he said yes. In 1987, John Bowers came. I think Larry Cauldron really gets most of the credit for recruiting John. They were good friends at the lab. I'd like to take that credit, because John was just given the highest honor at UCSB and was uh, made the faculty research lecturer. So John came and added another great component. In 1987, uh, we got Art Gossard, which, of course, was one of the great catches. Venki Narayanamurti, who's up there somewhere, called me uh, shortly after uh, we were dealing with uh, Art and said, you know, we expect that good research people at Bell Labs will eventually leave and go to a university, but not their technicians. <laughs> You're not supposed to do that, MERS. <laughs> technicians don't leave Summit or, or Murray Hill or New Providence. I said, funny, John English seems very enthusiastic talking to my wife, who was the real estate agent, uh, selling him a house. So Art came, and with him came uh, John English. Uh, it was um, a few years later when we recruited Venki Narayanamurti, and I think actually it was Evelyn who gets most of the credit for, for recruiting Venki and some of the others. Um, and you know what Venki did? He brought his technician. <laughs> Venki has an expression that we never understood. It's something like, the mustard cuts both ways. <laughs> Now, that's some kind of Indian mustard, you know. <laughs> it's not your plain, ordinary Goldens. 
so, um, so by this time, uh, we were starting to be called Bell Labs West. Each of these faculty uh, brought with them a unique capability, skill, insight, vision. Each attracted great graduate students and postdocs. The program grew exponentially. The scientific intensity grew. We defined the word synergism. We added people like Umesh Mishra, Mark Rodwell, uh, Nadir Dagli, I hope I'm not forgetting anybody will be hurt. Uh, but the program just had legs of its own and it took off. You know the rest, good things kept happening. Engineering 2 was built, the microelectronics clean room, the first one we had was built. Uh, the materials department was established, Quest, materials research laboratory, new engineering science building, the lighting center, et cetera, et cetera. It just grows like topsy. And uh, uh, so much has happened uh, since I left that I can't really include it all. It was amazing. It was fun when Herb and I worked together. I think it was the best time of my life. What role did Herb play? He provided the ideas, the vision. I did a lot of the work. He insisted on quality that we do it right. He believed that ideas grew from the grassroots, not from the top down, not from the administration. And that, for example, is how our STC quest came about. I've tried to think about famous pairs uh, that worked together that described our relationship. Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy, Bud Abbott and Lou Costello were popular in my youth. Herb's humor is much more subtle than that, and I'm not fat enough to be either Oliver Hardy or Lou Costello. Bing Crosby and Bob Hope made those road pictures. Neither of us, Herb and I, can sing, although I just heard he's a baritone. <laughs> and we did not have a Dorothy L'Amour. Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. That, that was a lot closer to the truth. I often felt like the dummy sitting on Herb's knee. But here's my best analogy. Newt Rockney and Gus Darius. Newt Rockney is the legendary football coach at Notre Dame. He was also a great player. And Gus Darius developed the forward pass into a lethal weapon that allowed this unknown school from the Midwest uh, to whip the likes of the great army powerhouse. So Herb was the quarterback. I ran like hell down the field, trying to get under his pass, hang on to it, and get over the goal line. And that's much of the way we operated. I'd like to end up with just a couple of personal relationships, and Bobby hasn't stood up yet, and my clock isn't working, so I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> Hospitality. When we arrived in Santa Barbara, Herb and Mary Lou had a d department uh, welcome party for us, which was memorable for us, moving into the academic world from the Bell Laboratories world, and we will never forget it. And we had many good times with the Chromas since then. Outwitting Jamie. Uh, Jamie's uh, our son, Rosemary and I. Uh, he's a very bright boy. He loves to read. He reads when he should read. He reads when he shouldn't read. In fact, he reads all the time. He doesn't do anything else. He doesn't do any work of any, any, any useful gain employee. I'm exaggerating a little. But at any rate, Rosemary and I went on a trip to Scandinavia, I think, to Sweden. And um, Herb and Mary Lou agreed to take Jamie. 
The first night Jamie was reading in his room, past bedtime, Herb came in, turned off the light. Ten minutes later, he walked past the door, saw the light under the door, opened the door, turned off the light. Ten minutes later, the light was still on, Herb walked in, turned off the light. And then he said, ha, I'm going to outwit this kid, he's only 13. He went into the garage and he pulled a master switch for the whole house. <laughs> I think the frozen meat started to melt. <laughs> Ten minutes later, Herb went by the room. He decided to look in. There was Jamie under the covers with a flashlight reading his book. <laughs> I don't know who outwitted whom, but Jamie is proud of the fact that he matched wits with a Nobel laureate in physics. <laughs> and we'll tell anybody who asks him. The Painted Cave Fire, well, the Merses, the Cromers, and the Bowers all shared an unenviable position of losing our homes and everything we owned in the Painted, painted Cave Fire in 1990. Many of you were here, I believe, because the DRC and the EMC were here at the time. People couldn't even get back from Santa Barbara to the campus. Rosemary and I were on the East Coast headed for... Um, Italy, for, uh, Sicily. Sicily, for a NATO, thank you, Rosemary, she always corrects me, for a NATO, was that Rosemary? <laughs> Is there another lady out there who's correcting me now? <laughs> Evelyn, you didn't do that, did you? Uh, and uh, we came rushing back. We were on the first flight out of Newark the uh, next morning. Uh, we were then eating out all the time because there was no place to eat in. And uh, the third or fourth night, we were at a nice restaurant, and Herb and Mary Lou walked in. They had just come back from Germany. Their house was gone, too. And uh, we got up, and uh, we four um, just hugged each other, sharing uh, something that was quite a significant change in our lives. And I suspect I'm the only guy in this room who's hugged Herb Cromer. <laughs> I don't plan to do it again, Herb. <laughs> but but it, it stayed with me all these years since 1990 uh, that we, uh, uh, we had a lot of good times together, but we knew how to share some not-so-good times together as well. So all I can say, Herb, is thanks for everything you've done. <laughs> when I first met uh, Herb Cromer was uh, at Rockwell uh, Science Center back in around 1987, maybe early 88. And this picture actually used to have Peter Asbeck's face on it, if I remember correctly. And, uh, and, uh, and it used to say down there, uh, save me, Dr. HPT, from those evil, evil HFETs. And as I got to know Herb Cromer and I got to know Larry Cauldron and John Bowers, who were all consultants there, I realized that... Uh, I wanted to come to Santa Barbara. I want to study more about, about compound semiconductors and work with these uh, f amazing people. And I remember asking Peter, who was everybody's hero at Rockwell Science Center, and Peter said that Herb was his hero, so the decision was kind of made for me. I might add that Mark, Mark Mundry. Mark Mundry was also there. He was a former student of Professor Cromer, and when he also wanted to come back, he decided he was going to go work for Larry Cauldron. And uh, I just want to show you exhibit one. This is Scott Corzine's thesis, 465 pages. And this is mine. <laughs> I, think, I think I made the right choice. 
I remember showing up here uh, summer of uh, 1989 and working the summer. I didn't realize that was part of the plan. Uh, it was a very good plan. I was introduced to the MB lab by uh, Herb to Art Gossard and John English and my MB mentor, Gary Tuttle. And I also got introduced uh, um, to the, uh, uh, the 6.1 Angstrom material group, which I'll talk about in a second. Uh, Herb had spent 36 years um, up as of today, Herbert spent 36 years as a consultant for Rockwell Science Center. We used to be Rockwell, then became Rockwell Science Center, and then we became Rockwell Scientific. And uh, those 36 years, he's uh, worked with a number of people that you've already heard from. Uh, we were bought by uh, Tel Teledyne Technologies, and that's Robert Morabian on the right. I get the feeling I've never really left Santa Barbara all these years uh, uh, with Robert there. Uh, so Herb introduced me to the 6.1 Angstrom uh, a lattice constant group, uh, indium arsenide, aluminum antimonide, and gallium antimonide, which is a, a dream uh, material system in a lot of ways because it's got all kinds of broken gaps, staggered gaps, and regular gaps. And uh, Herb always uh, said, you know, I like big effects. So when people were doing uh, PHEMS with indium uh, and increasing the electron velocity, he said, why don't we take it all the way? That was one of his philosophies. What would happen if you take something all the way to the extreme? and you would end up with indium arsenide and gallium antimonide and aluminum antimonide, and you'd have to work with this amazing material system, uh, which, uh, like I said, is, uh, offers a lot of advantages. Uh, Herb never, like I said, Herb liked big effects, and he always liked to tilt the playing field in his favor. And uh, <clears throat> this reminds me of the base of a silicon germanium uh, bipolar transistor. It's, it's the only way those transistors are going to be able to keep up with indium phosphate, I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> Uh, I'll tell you a story. I, I was uh, taking classes, and one of my classes was ECE211A. It was a quantum mechanics class from Herb. And uh, Herb used to uh, give exams, and the way he'd give his exams, there'd be three questions, each of which could, which could be done in 10 minutes uh, if you found the crank. Uh, but it looked, he gave you three hours just to torture you. Because you would, you know, have to sit there. And a lot of us would, not to torture you, but to give you plenty of time to find the crank. And a lot of us would sit and uh, work through these uh, problems and get out after three hours, and then we'd be smacking our head in the hallway as we realized how easy it was. And we'd miss the point in a lot of cases. But I remember once uh, he had scheduled a, an exam in the evening, a midterm exam, and uh, uh, one of my... Uh, guys I was work, uh, working next to nudged me on the side. He says, hey, that's the day we have our, our intramural basketball game. Why don't you ask her to change the date? And I looked at him, kind of funny, but uh, I sort of swallowed and said, Herb, could we uh, change the date from Wednesday to Thursday for the exam? And I think I caught Herb completely off guard. And Herb looked at me, and he looked around the room, and he took it to a vote. And everybody was dead silent, so we changed the the date of the exam, uh, and uh, I was sort of a hero as I walked out. The next time he had to set the exam, which is the final, he uh, announced the date of the exam, looked around the room slowly, and his gaze rested just about an inch above my head, and he said, unless there are any sporting events planned for that day. <laughs> Herb said, indium arsenide, aluminum antimonide, no problem. Uh, it's a direct band gap material. Why don't you uh, do some photoluminescence, and uh, we can get started. 
And uh, so I took the sample dutifully and grew it because you had to grow your own samples. Thanks to Gary Tuttle, I learned how to grow them. Took them in, we had to measure them. I had Jim Merz's postdoc, Helge Wieman, there. How could I lose? He was new, we were gonna find light. It was, everything was gonna be great. And uh, no light. Uh, grew another sample, no light. Grew a thicker sample, no light. Grew multi, multi quantum well samples, no light. And finally found out that the window on the, um, on the door, thank you, Jim, uh, was made out of quartz. Uh, it cuts off at 2.25 microns. <laughs> Replace the window with sapphire, which is transmissive. Still no light. Sapphire doesn't produce light in samples that don't produce light, unfortunately. And so <laughs> I was stuck, and um, Herb called me in his office and said, Bobby, uh, is it you or is it the project? So that's uh, management 101. <laughs> and I couldn't answer him. I was sort of stuck. And I remember thinking to myself that if anybody ever asks me that question again, I'm going to know the answer. And so I started becoming a little more diligent, started breaking down the problem, and started to work a little more efficiently. Uh, and that was a great lesson for me uh, in, in those days. I did find gallium and timonide super lattices that we used to have, gallium and timonide, aluminum and timonide super lattices under the sample to make the well smoother. They always gave light. So I said, why don't I just look over there? Because there's light here. So we started to look at those samples, and we started to make them thinner and thinner, and we finally found out that gallium and timonide, even at one monolayer, emitted light, uh, which is somewhat surprising because at four nanometers quantum well thickness, gallium and timonide goes from direct band gap to L Valley, and then goes from L Valley to X Valley. And it shouldn't be producing a lot of light. And so Herb and I uh, got light out of 0.3 nanometers of gallium and timonide, and Herb was intrigued and happy and uh, explained it uh, with, uh, with the same kind of K selection rules that uh, you would have for defects, saying that K was not a good quantum number for a 100 X Valley semiconductor. And so you would be able to uh, get light. And so that was one of my first papers. My second paper with Herb, I tried the same trick. I took the indium arsenide, and I said, hey, if it worked for gallium and timonide, maybe I can do that with indium arsenide where I couldn't get light. We did manage to produce light. And there was some confusion about exactly what was happening as we made the wells thinner and thinner. And Herb uh, and I wrote the paper. I got it back. It was red and with all kinds of corrections, went back and... The next time it was a little less red, and then less red, and then finally Herb said, what are you trying to say here? And I said, well, there's four different things. He says, what are they? I said, I listed them, one, two, three, four. He says, write it. I said, nobody's going to write one, two, three, four, you know. He says, write it exactly like that. And we wrote it, and we chose the one phenomena that we thought was the most promising to explain the data, and it turned out to be correct. And so Herb always said, you know, try and keep it as simple as possible and say exactly what you're going to say. Um, I will tell you that Herb was a fantastic teacher. Um, in his uh, homework assignments, his last homework assignment, he would teach us, he would always ask us to make up a problem. And I realized that making up a problem was more difficult, actually, than, than answering one. Uh, that was one thing I remember. He also said to me, he says he had an honorary PhD in English. I don't know if that's true, but I believed it till I graduated from here uh, when he would help me correct my papers and my thesis. Uh, I remember my screening exam, and uh, Herb did something very nice for me after my screening exam, which is a pretty emotional and difficult time for somebody who's been in the college for a year. He said, look, why don't you uh, call me so you don't have to come back to the building and look on the board and see whether you passed or not. 
And I thought that was very nice, so I went with Mark Mondry to the USEN, and I drowned my sorrows in the beer, wondering whether I would pass or not. And sure enough, uh, after I'd drunk a few, and it was 5 o'clock, I called Herb 3078, I said, and Herb said, you passed. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> what matters is what you do in the lab. So that was also Management 101. Don't tell me what you've done for me. Tell me what you're going to do. Uh, I don't remember uh, her being uh, wrong very often, except one time. If you don't mind, I'll tell the story. Uh, it, was a MB, it was one of those MBE meetings that Art talked about, and we were talking about how uh, inside a... Uh, oops, sorry. I'm a little bit out of turn. Inside a quantum well, if you apply an electric field, that... Uh, um, the wave function would actually shift uh, towards the surface. And Herb said, no, it would shift away from the surface. And he gave a very elegant reason why. And the reason was that, uh, that you, you would have less kinetic energy. There's a flat energy, and the, the bands would be, would be sloped. And then as they shifted away, uh, it would spend more time uh, uh, in locations where the energy was lower, and therefore it would be peaked uh, in that direction. And so Art said, no, that's not true. And it was sort of an impasse. I remember Chan and me and Pete Hopkins looking at each other. We'd never had the situation where Herb and Art actually disagreed on something. And so we ran back to the lab, and Chan and Pete Hopkins worked out the first-order correction using perturbation theory. And sure enough, Art was right. Art knew, because he'd done modulation doped wells. He'd also done the quantum-confined Stark effect. And it turns out that the first and the ground state is the only one that shifts towards the interface. All the other states act in the classical way that Herbert described, and they move away from the interface uh, as they would classically. Um, Herb and I, uh, I worked with Herb for um, six years, and uh, towards the end of uh, my thesis, Herb had an idea about the electronic uh, properties of indium arsenide field effect transistors and exactly what was causing some of their output conductance. And he described an experiment that I was fortunate enough to be able to realize in the lab and uh, managed to show that, indeed, uh, the problem with these devices was the valence band and holes generated during impact ionization. I remember Herb saying, you can go ahead and write it, write it up, and that can be a thesis. And he said, 100 pages. That's the limit. He says, if it's more than 100 pages, I won't read it. He said, if it's more than 200 pages, I won't sign it. <laughs> and I went to my thesis defense with this 86-page thesis, and, uh, and um, I said thank you to Herb uh, for a wonderful six years. And I said, uh, it was great to work for you. And Herb said to me, you didn't work for me. You worked with me. And I couldn't help myself uh, to say, now you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> With that, I'd like to uh, ask Lars Samuelson, who's our next speaker. And, uh, I didn't give a title for my talk. Um, I first met Herb in 1978. This was the American MBE workshop, which was held here. And I was invited to give a talk. And uh, I knew about Herb Kromer only that he probably was a theoretician. So I visited him, and he showed me to the lab. 
And to my surprise, there was an MBE system, Varian 360, it was already shown today. And I had a lot of discussion about this subject, how to integrate silicon with the three fives. And his idea was, among others, to use this orientation, silicon 211, to deposit gallium phosphide on that. With this, you had a sub-lattice controlled by chemical bonding preference, so there should be no anti-phase boundaries. I took this picture out of this paper. I met also at that time, 78, Steve Wright here, and we had a very interesting discussion. So to, to my surprise, it turned out that he also was a very good experimentalist, and he had excellent students. So he was much ahead of the time, so this subject on growing 3.5s on silicon took off almost 10 years later. And uh, he was one of the pioneers of presenting these ideas. Of course, now this problem has been solved much more elegant by some of your colleagues in a collaboration with Intel, for example. And uh, i show you another example from the University of Marburg from last year. This was growth of gallium phosphide on silicon 100. And this shows that you have a much better interface than you could have got in that early times. So things are going on and moving on in this field. And as said, there are some very elegant solutions to this very old problem. Now, Next I met Herb was at this conference in 1983. This was on molecular beam epitaxy and heterostructures. Herb is here. You see him here on the top of the community on heterostructures. Uh, here is Leo Izaki, who was the director of the school. Here is Al Cho, Lero Chang. This is myself here. This is Gerhard Abstreiter here on top also. Okay, this was 1983, so we had a very good time in Sicily. Somebody said, well, you went to Italy, and then you were corrected by your wife, it was Sicily. Sicily is part of Italy. <laughs> <laughs> it's different from the main part of Italy, but it's part of Italy. So, in the same year, Herb had a chance to work in Japan at the entity Musashino Electrical Communication Laboratory in the Okamoto Group, 1983. I show you here a picture with myself from 84. I didn't find a picture from Herb. But the problem was, at one evening, I think it was an evening or Saturday afternoon, he got off on the wrong station along the Seibushi Nyuku line. At that time, there was no English sign at all on these stations, because I, I experienced the same thing. So the consequence was that the laboratory very much cared for me. I was not allowed to go by myself on the Seibushin Yuku line. <laughs> and the poor freshman, Hirayama here, he's now a professor in Sendai, he had really to care for me. But I, I managed to get on the line also myself. I didn't get lost. And uh, uh, so this is Okamoto here. And this is uh, Kurunayagi, who was the director of the lab. This is Tarucha here, who is now a famous professor at the University of Tokyo. And uh, Hirama, Hirayama is here. Okay, this was a paper which came out 
from uh, this stay at Okamoto's lab. Okay, so this was 1983. You see her up here, this was 1992. We organized the International MBE Conference in Schwäbisch Gmünd. So you see we have two umlauts here, Schwäbisch Gmünd. <laughs> Very difficult. But here you see Herb is in the center of the MBE community. So this is Herb. This is El Cho, Lero Chang. So he's in the center of the MBE community. This was 1992. In 1992, I had moved to Berlin uh, to start a new adventure, real adventure. And I managed to convince Herb to help us. So this was an institute which emerged out of one of the East German Academy of Science institutions. And uh, because I knew that Herb was originally coming from East Germany, you heard about this story this morning. Uh, so I convinced him, and he wanted to know some of the people who were supposed to work in that new institute. I should tell you that 80% of the people we were allowed to hire were from East German institutions. So they had no idea how to discuss in English, how to accept criticism and all these things. And fortunately, Herb spoke German. So we uh, organized a very small, we call it brainstorming. And this is a place, this is Feldberg, north of Berlin, so this is a village here. Uh, and this was actually the hall where we had the presentations. This is originally a dancing hall. I don't know Herb, whether you remember this place. Uh, it's, today it looks very much the same as it looked in 1993. Uh, and it's still existing. You can find information on the homepage Stieg Litzenkrug. Stieglitz is actually a bird. And Krug means like a Gaststätte. So this is a typical German word from that region, Krug. So we had a very interesting time there because Herb, you know as he is, he's always very frank in his opinion, he's very open. So he right away asked questions to the people in German. So they were not afraid to have to speak in foreign languages. But they were sometimes very upset that there's somebody who dares to criticize what I was saying and things like that. But it was excellent, an excellent opportunity for them to learn how it works. And then I convinced him to become a member of our scientific advisory board. And he stayed there for three years. Uh, I show you a number of photographs from this, uh, some of these meetings. So we had the inauguration, the official one, in 1993. Here Herb is discussing with one of our managers, Dr. Schulz. Here he discusses actually with the great-granddaughter of Paul Drude. She's not, uh, she, she doesn't have any education in physics. She studied some completely different field. But she was very interested in discussions about science and engineering. 
And I'll show you one more photograph. You have seen that already here from one of our advisory board meeting. This is Matthias Wassermeyer, who spent some time as a postdoc here at this university. You may remember him. Okay, finally, I would like to say something which was from this person here on the occasion of the 100th birthday of Paul Drury, which was 1963. Uh, this is in German, and I will try to translate this, not word by word, in English, because it was a little bit old-style German, but I think this very much applied to Herb. He, uh, Paul Dure was an excellent theoretical, uh, he had an ex, uh, excellent theoretical and experimental talent, and he showed very sound realism. He uh, didn't like speculations, and he appreciated particularly those theories which could be confirmed by experiments. So this is almost telling you everything also about Herb. And Herb is some kind of thanks for you. I brought you an original copy of some of the most important papers of Paul Drude, uh, which we edited at uh, the 100th anniversary of Paul Drude passing away. It's in German, so it gives you some duty, and I hope you will enjoy it. And one last thing, Herb, thank you very much for your help, which we got. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.